Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. Hopefully we didn't lose any viewers um, taking a week-long break. Uh, I just really wanted to be able to produce this next series of podcasts without having to rush because I my computer had been in the shop and it just oh it just started to become a nightmare and I really enjoyed doing this and I yeah I wanted it to be chill again um so yeah so I now I have a brand new computer and me and Vimala Sara recorded some really awesome conversations to share with you uh, with Deborah Grace and Kevin Griffin and Sunu Feld Ellis. So, yeah, it was really fun getting to listen in and record these conversations. Uh, they are a sneak peek into what one could expect from the Buddhist Recovery Summit that's coming up in September, uh, September 5th through 8th. If you haven't registered yet, registration is closing soon. So check out BuddhistRecoverySummit.org to yeah register and save your spot. Um, I just went actually to the campground uh, or retreat center. <laughs> it's not it's not camping. Um, the retreat center the other day and took pictures and oh it's just so beautiful. It's like right on the lake and you know there's just a big forest that it's all centered in and fields and lots of trails and it's cool the last summit was at the same spot but it wasn't in the summer and it was raining so we didn't really get to spend a lot of time outdoors but this year it's going to be early September so it'll be like the that's like the warmest time of the year in Washington so it'll be it'll just be gorgeous so yeah I am just excited to like tell some like spooky Buddhist scary stories uh, around the campfire with y'all um, yeah so hopefully I'll get to see you all there uh, again that's BuddhistRecoverySummit.org if you haven't registered yet um, okay well without further ado Vimala Sara and Deborah Grace I'm Dr. Valerie Mason-John, a.k.a. Vimala Sara, and I'm the author of the twice award-winning book, Eight Set Recovery, Using the Buddha's Teachings to Overcome Addiction. I'm also the current president of the Buddhist Recovery Network. And, well, what else do I want to say? <laughs> it's great. You know, it's, it's wonderful to just know that people out there are listening and I just really want to remind people that take what you want and leave the rest. Deborah, it'd be really great to introduce yourself. Um, hello, thank you for having me. This is a real honor. My name is uh, Deborah Grace, and I am a therapist in Olympia, Washington, specializing in attachment, in helping people love themselves, helping people through addiction, especially love and sex addiction, um, how that shows up in relationship, how that shows up with individuals. I am also an author and have written about my own personal journey with love and sex addiction um, over many years. 
I am a mother and have adopted children and a foster daughter. And all those experiences really inform um, my quest for loving compassion with myself, with others, with my clients, and uh, living a life of meaning and service to the best that I can. So it's a real honor to be here. It's great to have you. And we've got lots to speak about, Deborah. Myself, I was grew up in foster homes in orphanages mm-hmm. and, and on the streets. So I just want to take my hat off to you in terms of actually being of service to look after somebody else's child. Because we know it's hard enough looking after our own children, but looking after somebody else's children, that's really hard. And we know that actually when children have been adopted or fostered, the likelihood or the the statistics of them falling prey to addictions or compulsive behaviors is often somewhat higher. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I'm curious, what what made you decide to look after somebody else's child? Um, Especially with my foster girl. So uh, my two sons are adopted from Ethiopia and A friend of a friend had adopted a girl from Ethiopia and was really struggling with her. So they were considering putting her um, to the state, you know, up for foster care because they didn't feel like they could care for her. And so uh, they asked, could I help? And as soon as I met with them and opened my front door, I thought, oh, my God, that's my daughter. (laughs) And she was 12. And I um, she was very uh, precocious, I think is the right word. And uh, the family wasn't able to regulate their emotions. She was very intense. And I definitely felt what you're talking about, that this is a really high-risk girl because she needs love and she's um, sort of already looking for it in, in places that could really harm her. So um, it just felt, you know, it was difficult. It was difficult for my family. It was difficult for my boys. And um, it felt like uh, it was just, it was meant to be. <laughs> I mean, like, wow, you took on a (laughs) 12-year-old. Yeah. And can I tell you a story? Because when I knew she was coming, I felt just, you know, I followed my intuition and I I cleaned my threshold. I, I like, cleaned my entry. I saged. I I dropped uh, lavender oil on the, the threshold of the front door. I've never done that in my life in that way. And it was just what I felt like I needed to do. And then she came. And um, it is, it's not been easy with her. I won't, I won't paint any picture that, you know, we are an easy mother, daughter. It's, it's, I, we struggle, but. Um, well, most mother daughters do, <laughs> do struggle. So yes. let's put that in, in perspective. But I do yes. have a question. Your, yeah. your partner, is, is your par- partner a Caucasian American or African American? Um, so the partner of my first six children is Caucasian. And my part, my second husband is also Caucasian. Okay, so I mean, I just the the reason why I ask is just also as well the transracial fostering yeah. and and adoption, and again the stats go up even higher. There is such a high st- statistic of those of us who have been transracially raised who are either in mental institutions yeah. or who have taken our lives or yeah. who have fallen prey to addiction. So how are your how are your children um, doing? And we know you've you adopted two 
black boys are at risk as well in society. And so um, when I adopted my two boys, they were five and seven. And, um, you know, I have much more awareness now. And so looking now, you know, almost 10 years later about, you know, a white person adopting black children, is that even okay? And I still don't know the answer to that. Um, I did choose, um, I knew I wanted to adopt um, children and I already had four and it felt like the foster system was going to be more complicated in some ways. Um, I have been with, uh, my first partner was, he was African American and so I had uh, connections with culture, with his family that felt like somehow I could justify, you know, for me it felt like that was something that I knew somewhat. Um, I chose boys that were five and seven, so they were already aging out of the system in Ethiopia, um, wanting to make more of a difference. Many people who adopted there looked for, you know, young girls that they felt like they could shape and um, have more of an influence on. So my boys are doing very, they're now 14 and 16, and they're very well integrated. Um, We live in a more diverse chose a more diverse area of town. Their school is very, I would say, quite diverse. Um, and so they, you know, they're popular. They are in, have sports. They do struggle with racism um, as, I, as anyone does who's African-American that I've, you know, that I've learned about. So... I mean, that's fantastic. And I know at that age, their life begins to change because they become vulnerable on the streets, vulnerable to the police actually singling them out. Right. We have conversations all the time about their experiences. And and they've said, you don't know, mom. You don't know. There's no way you know what we're going through. And I just say, I don't. You know, so I'm, yeah. (laughs) And I mean, it's interesting because I don't think the question is, should white people adopt black children? The question is, why aren't um, social services giving black children to black parents? Right. Because, you know, I grew up in that era where actually black parents couldn't adopt because they weren't seen as suitable families. Right. So, of course, a white parent can provide a loving home. In fact, Jackie Kay, who's one of our most famous black British writers, was adopted by white Scottish people. And she's completely well-adjusted because her parents introduced uh, black icons into her life. So Mm -hmm. she knew, she was familiar with her culture. Yeah. So of course, of, of, of course, and, and it's great that you are able to provide a, a loving family for them. Yeah. yeah. And let, let's, yeah, I mean, it's just really interesting. How, how have your other kids integrated with you, with their extended family? I mean, they, you know, they, they were young when they, they came in kind of right under where my children are. So my son, who's 18, uh, my so my fourth son, who's 18, is about to go to college. And, I mean, he's just, he's been the big brother to his younger brothers. It feels, you know, like family. I think that they all feel as... what well, it is it. family, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. I mean, it yeah. doesn't, I don't think it feels, well, I would say it, it feels different and it feels similar. Mm. You know, there are, um, there's so many dynamics among children that it's hard to know what's adoption and what's just family and personality and um, I would say we're all very um, 
attached and committed to one another. Um, yeah. One of the, one of the places my sister is adopted and um, I know sometimes it can be really difficult when there's a conflict. Well, you know, you're not one of us sometimes. Yeah. And, and, and it can happen. I, a very moving story. A, a friend of mine who was adopted and she had a brother who wasn't. And the father was dying and she took great care of the father. The mm-hmm. brother was in Australia and she was in Europe. And when the father died, he had a will and he left all the money to the biological son. Oh, that's... Oh. And, um, which is common, yeah. but the biological yeah. son gave her 50% and she was oh. shocked. And he said, yeah, you're yeah. my sister. Some yeah. people wouldn't do that. Yeah. Some people, no. you know, it, when it comes to that, some people wouldn't do that. Yeah. 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 Anyway, it's yeah. a great gift. I think it's, it's, it's a great gift because we know that, you know, if those children had... A, continued growing up in Africa in orphanages, their life would have been very, very different. So yeah. just just yeah. thank you. You know, thank you for being a bodhisattva and <laughs> of service. So just really, I mean, in, in a way, it's part of your Buddhist practice, your bodhisattva practice. I must admit, yeah. I was going to adopt and my yeah. partner didn't want to adopt. And in the end, my partner said, oh, yes, go on. And then it was like... I'm not sure I'm prepared to let go of this life I have. You know, it's like realizing the penny dropped if I adopted, my life would completely change. Yeah. So I take my hat yeah. off and I thank you yeah. for um, providing a home yeah. to all your children, your, 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 your biological children and your maternal, <laughs> maternal children. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And I'll just say I've made some pretty significant sacrifices in that I got remarried and my... My, my husband, he lived just because of where his children were. You know, I've really uh, made my children my focus. So I don't live with him yet until the children are a little older and have integrated really slowly. And, you know, it's just been um, like they, they, like when you said that does feel like service and children shouldn't ever feel like their service. You know, you don't say that to them. <laughs> so yeah. even, you know, any child, <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. So, and they've taught me so incredibly much about attachment to things, to outcome, to um, my vision of myself, to it's just been my great teacher. Let's talk about attachment because we know that many of us who have addictions or compulsive behaviors, basically we attach to the actually choice of distraction. Mm. That's where right. we, that's where we developed our attachment. You know, my attachment right. was to the food, to the cocaine, to the champagne, which <laughs> brought us joy and pleasure. Why, why would we want to attach to those things? I feel like we're looking for wholeness. We're looking for connection. We're looking for, you know, connection with ourselves and to feel divinity, to feel God. And so those things can, they're almost like rocket fuel. They can provide, uh, you know, an increased experience of that sometimes, especially in cocaine, in, um, you know, in drugs, in the beginning of relationship when it's so intense. So I think, you know, there's that piece of we're looking for beauty. We're looking for mysticism. We're looking for bliss that is just natural to being a human. I mean, I... 
yeah. as, as you say, being human, because I know for my myself, like I, I had so many carers and people just kept on leaving. I knew from a very young age, don't get close to anybody because they might leave. Right. And yet, you know, my, I was a chronic, uh, bulimic anorectic mm. for over 25 years. I was diagnosed as an extreme chronic bulimic anorectic and mm. the food didn't leave me. I had control. I, yes. The food was with me all the time. Right. Even right. though I was rejecting it, it was with me. It yes. didn't let me down. Yes. No, I agree. I was anorectic as well when I was up for many years. And so, yes, Right. And so I think too, that we don't want to feel the pain of separateness and we don't want to feel our trauma. And so when we take, you know, and even when we're young and we take that first drink and we feel that warmth, you know, a lot of it is so much just that kind of warmth that we should have been getting at the rest of our mothers, you know? Um, And And that separateness that you speak about the late uh, Stephen Levine, who is the Mm father of Noah Levine, who's responsible for the whole refuge recovery and against the stream lineage. And in Stephen's book, he, I remember reading this years ago in his book, Who Dies, which is a Mm -hmm. fantastic book to read. And he would say that an end of a meal on end of a holiday was a mini rehearsal for death. And I can remember when I started to feed myself, the pain of the last morsel. Right. The pain. And what I would do not to feel that pain, it was a bit like, you know, when you're with a lover and the pain of separating. So because you don't want to feel the pain, you either take drugs together or you eat a meal or you have sex or you have a fight. So you don't have to experience the pain. Right. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I've I've felt all that. (laughs) Yeah. And then, um, you know, in my, so I had this, you know, long journey with mothering where I was uh, attachment parenting and then I adopted and then I had got divorced. And when I was in college, I was an alcoholic. I was, you know, anorexic. I was uh, just very uh, ungrounded. And when I became, when I got divorced at like 41, it all came back that all those patterns, not as deeply, but they came back and I really had to look at the love sex addiction piece for myself, kind of a second pass. Um, And how did that, how did that play out in your life? This sex love addiction piece? How, what did that look like? For me, it looked like, um, so it's interesting because I fell in, my husband, uh, he was a yogi and he was, uh, I sort of got spiritual path by proxy from him and so he would uh he lived in the ashram for many years and so but it turned out he was really unfaithful during our marriage which i didn't know for most of it so when i found out he was unfaithful at about year 15 um we decided to i decided to stay for the children found out he was unfaithful again stayed again for the children and then i actually went to a uh, loving what is retreat with byron katie I don't know if you know her work. Yes, um, of course, Byron. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I went to her nine-day retreat, and I had, uh, you know, some people might call it a crack. <laughs> so I went, and I, uh, I just sobbed for nine days, and I connected with men there that, uh, on a heart level instead of on a sexual level, for the first time probably in my life, other men who are hurting, and I thought, wow, not not all men cheat. It was just sort of the beginning of this healing process for me. 
Um, and then I came home to my children and I was very unattached and I was very sort of too open. And I um, decided that I needed to try an open marriage, which really uh, was really the end of my relationship. But I wasn't able to yet know that, you know, I didn't, wasn't able to just take that step. And in that, I fell in love with the man who's now my husband. In, but yet it was like a devastating love. I completely lost myself. I wasn't grounded at all. Um, I was, my happiness totally depended on if he texted me or not, or if he was with me. And it just didn't feel like I could ever get full, um, which is really how I was my whole in a lot of ways. It I, and you know, there, there is actually evidence that actually a shot of heroin can, in, um, the, a shot of herring produces the same amount of, of endorphins as with love addiction when that text arises yes. and the endorphins right. release. Right. Like, yeah, it's yeah. that intense. And I, 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 I've been there too. Like my first relationship, I was, I don't know if you know the, um, book return of the native. I, um, mm. who, who wrote return of the native anyway, it doesn't matter. Return, return of the native. And in that book, Eustacia queen of the night who mm. loved to madness. And mm. I was this person who loved to madness. I would look at my lover. I was like, 18 and I would look at her as if she 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 just transformed in front yeah. of me and I wondered what was happening I was I was literally seeing the illusion in front of me literally creating this illusion in front of me and as you say like I mean back in the day there wasn't the text but oh my god I I I love to madness and I know that when this when that relationship ended and it was a very painful end but i knew that i had to end that relationship when i came across buddhism Mm. I knew after six months of Buddhism, I knew I was never going to love like that again. Mm. And then I, I, I thought I was being cheated. I was angry because right. Buddhism, I, I just stopped there because I could hear that would have picked it up. I, I was angry. Buddhism had cheated me. I was never going to have that intoxicating love again when right. all the endorphins go off and the rush. And, you know, as somebody says, it's always great to have somebody to play with your head. You think of the person and you, you feel the rush in your body and, you know, all your, your sexual organs feel alive because you've just had this thought of this person. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and I think when my therapist at the time said, he said, I, you're an addict, you have a love addiction. And you know, he handed me a book and I thought, never, I'm a lover. You know, that's my archetype. I am the lover. I can't, you know, I can't, I can't even entertain that. <laughs> the thought that this has to go away. And, um, yeah, so I started writing. I mean, I had written about motherhood and I had written about spirituality, that whole journey all through my 20s and 30s. And, and I started writing this book, What Would Aphrodite Do? And I wrote these poems about love addiction and, and sexuality. And, and that was really my practice, um, was the everyday writing for a year. Um, and that, I mean, I've always been a seeker. I've always been someone who's, you know, looking at myself and looking at others. 
Okay, so we are going to stop there for the week. Um, there's so much more conversation, and I can't wait to share the rest of it with you. Um, but yeah, we're going to stop there for now. We've had people, you know, let us know that 20, 30 minutes are the length that they prefer for podcasts. Um, and if anyone else has suggestions or comments or anything they want to say um, about the podcast, feel free to email me directly at findingperiodvalentine at gmail.com. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear from people that are listening in. Um, okay, so yeah, that's all we got for you today. May we all find what brings us peace and share that peace with our communities. <laughs>